listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hey, this is Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed, and I'm here today with Terry Burnham, who is a professor at Chapman University and also the author of a couple of fantastic books. This one from 20 years ago, Mean Jeans. Hopefully it's still in print. You need to get a second edition or a third edition of this one out because this is really an awesome book. And then also this one, Mean Markets and Lizard Brains. And you've just begun a, a series of articles called Ordinaries, which I'm hoping will be turned into a book at some point. Any plans on that? Uh, possibly. We'll see. We've got uh, a few more episodes to print before we think about that. Yeah. So you've been working for the last 20 years, and I should mention that you've had a, a lot of other experiences besides teaching. You've worked in the field of biology. You've been a, a founder of a startup. You've been in the military, a bunch of other things that have contributed to your, I think, unique perspective on biology, economics, and, and psychology. And I wanted to start off by asking you, how did you first think about combining all of these different disciplines? Because as you've made the point so many times, economists are often reluctant to import concepts from other disciplines. Yeah. So let's talk at some point soon about the relationship between economic behavior and testosterone and why that's important for understanding this framework. But going back to the backstory, the genesis of my own interest in this, I was a graduate student at Harvard and we had Steve Marglin as a professor. And Steve Marglin was the only Marxist at Harvard who got tenured. All the rest got kicked out and sent to Amherst. But he was tenured and he was allowed to come in and deprogram graduate students in economics by teaching us Marxist economics. And what he did was he said, look, let's think about human nature broadly. Let's not start with these assumptions about human nature that economics normally starts with. So whenever you take your first econ class, you learn people like money, but in diminishing amounts, we have attitudes about risk and time. And from those, we derive behavior. And Marglin said, no, let's endogenize those axioms. Let's think about where people came from. And I just thought this was was great. I was so excited. I went to his office that afternoon. He was there in his Marxist shawl from, you know, some indigenous people. And we got along great until he said, everything is socially constructed. The reason that we have the values that we have is because of TV and magazines and because of capitalism and so forth. And that's why people like the things that they like. And that's why they do what they do. And I said, well, what about biology? And he said, no, that's not where it comes from. Biology creates the tabula rasa, the blank slate. And on that, culture creates human nature. And he went so far as to say that in cultures where people kill their senior citizens, you know, by pushing them out on the ice floe, that the people are happy to die, that they want to work for the society. And the only reason that people in capitalist societies want to live and consume goods is because of culture. And I left never to return because I like the idea of endogenizing preferences and thinking about where people came from, but I didn't like the stupidity of the tabula rasa, everything comes from culture. So obviously people like food because among your ancestors, those who ate food lived and those who didn't eat food didn't live, et cetera. So it was a great, a great thing. And I remember too, just to finish that story, Boaz Moselle was the teaching fellow for the, the, the recitation section. And the first time we met after Steve Marvin had introduced to us, he said, why is Harvard great? That's how Boaz started the, the class. And the answer was, hey, 
whether he's right or wrong, it's great to think about things in a different way. And it definitely stirred me up and it led to where I am now. So while neoclassical economists just take preferences as, as given and being exogenous, Margolin and the Marxists try to endogenize them. But where they both agree is that revealed preferences are what we're observing in human behavior and that people are in fact doing what they prefer. And there's no multiple levels of, of preferences that are potentially in, in conflict with one another. Right. So one time I was walking through Harvard Square, one of my jobs in graduate school was to be the assistant to Amartya Sen. And uh, so it was a great job. We invited all these famous people to come give talks. And you know it was really probably the most important part of my education in graduate school so we were walking through Harvard Square together and we saw, you know, the typical Harvard Square collection of people from various approaches to life. And Marty asked me, so Terry, if you see a homeless person trying to cut their fingers off with dull scissors, what should you do? And I thought from, I don't really actually remember what I said, but he said, your first answer might be, you know, give them sharp scissors. But actually the more subtle answer is to offer them sharp scissors. So to your point, when you see something do something self-destructive, whether it be self-mutilation, suicide, drug addiction, living a lifestyle that's going to lead to early death, economists assume that they're optimizing. So we don't know better than they do. They know better than we do. We're not able to impose our values on them. So being a, a well-trained like undergraduate economist, you'd say, oh, give them sharper scissors. They're trying to cut their fingers off. But if you're really sophisticated about it, they may prefer the slow hacking of the dull scissors. So in fact, giving them sharp scissors is not necessarily even better for them. Maybe what they're doing now is already better. Maybe they had the choice of the sharp scissors. And, you know, I think all of that is stupid. And I think that the source of all these behaviors that seem strange is that humans did not evolve in this environment. And so we were forged by natural selection to replicate genes. And we're very good at that incredibly smart entities and the behaviors that look really strange to us come from those genetic neural capabilities being placed in a very strange environment well before we get into the, the mismatch approach when you criticize neoclassical economics i mean isn't this kind of like beating a dead horse hasn't the world moved on aren't we all behavioral economists at this point to find someone who dismisses behavioral economics you know that person's got to be sort of, you know, out of step in the modern economics department, wouldn't you say? I don't think so. I mean, people give lip service to behavioral economics, but most of the models, especially the normative models, still are based in neoclassical views. So nothing is true in the conclusions of neoclassical economics if the axioms are wrong. So I don't know. I'm sure they still teach the first fundamental welfare theorem in every graduate school in the world. And the first fundamental welfare theorem says that the outcomes of a laissez-faire economy are Pareto optimal. And uh, that's not true if the assumptions of neoclassical economics are not correct. So you know, we have a problem there, which is people give lip service to the anomalies of behavioral economics, but they haven't integrated them into the foundation. And so unbeknownst to many people, the normative statements by economics are still based in views that are inconsistent with the behavioral economic literature. So is behavioral economics then just sort of like, you know, Ptolemaic curly Q grafted onto yeah. the you know, Earth-centric model? Yes, it's exactly that. So in the first of the columns that you talked about, the ordinaries columns, let me just give a little bit of background on that. So Richard Thaler made his uh, fame or one part of his fame by writing the anomalies column in the Journal of Economic Perspectives. And each of the columns picked some finding or assumption of neoclassical economics 
and presented information that said that it was wrong or incomplete. You know, there are obviously more sophisticated academic papers, but this was a, a very generalist discussion of the problems with neoclassical economics. And he called those anomalies. And he called them anomalies specifically because he wanted to use the framework of Thomas Kuhn. And Thomas Kuhn's framework, as you alluded to, is that you have a paradigm that's wrong, and that is the dominant paradigm. And then evidence accumulates that is inconsistent with the paradigm, and Kuhn calls those anomalies. And then when you get the next version of the theory that is a better version, it incorporates those anomalies, and the anomalies go away. They're not anomalous anymore. You have a better theory that incorporates whatever the first theory encompassed, as well as the anomalies. So for Thaler, he explicitly wanted to overthrow the neoclassical framework, and therefore he used the term anomalies because he wanted to complete a revolution, and that revolution has stalled. So those first papers were done in the 70s, 1970s, and 80s, and there is no replacement yet for neoclassical economics because behavioral economics has failed to replace the axioms of neoclassical economics. So we're stalled at sort of stage two in the Kuhnian paradigm. We now have all this evidence that the neoclassical paradigm is not perfect, but we don't have a replacement paradigm. Well, what I find interesting about the early sort of phase of behavioral economics is that it, it focused on, as you say, rather trivial defects in the rational paradigm, such as the ways on selection task and you know, the conjunction fallacy and these sort of, you know, errors in cognition rather than focusing on the real issues, which you point out have to do with behaviors that are, that are fundamentally harmful to human life, health, happiness, and, and so forth. I think, you know, behavioral economists are starting to focus on issues of self-control much more than they did in the past. But I think the canonical example of a behavioral economics insight is to look at these bounded rationality defects. One of Margot's exam questions, going back to that first introduction, was he said, you observe, you know, Professor Marty Feldstein driving home from work at Harvard, and the shortest route home is 12 minutes, but he takes a route home that's 25 minutes. That's the whole question. Okay? Why? <laughs> There's a question right? on the and end of that. Yeah, yeah, question mark. And the answer is, he's making fun of neoclassical economics because the entity that's presumably maximized by people in standard economic theory is something that's very hard to measure, utility or happiness or satisfaction. And so can we say that Marty Feldstein was making a mistake by taking a route that was twice as long to get home? And the answer with the neoclassical economics is no, because we don't know what his preferences are. Maybe the longer route went by the river and he liked looking at the river. And so to your point, the reason that the anomalies of neo-behavioral economics focus on such trivial issues is because the big picture issues are actually consistent with neoclassical economics. So Gary Becker and Casey Mulligan have a paper where they argue that dying from heroin in six months is optimal. And they're not joking. It's not a satire. It's not like that, you know, satirical postmodern argument, uh, famous paper. This is, they actually believe it, right? And what's the argument? Well, if you use heroin, you get a lot of pleasure today, and then you have a miserable life in the future. And that doesn't mean that's a mistake within the neoclassical framework, right? because you might have a high discount rate. So I don't care about the future very much. The pleasure today is worth a lot. And because of that, all the issues that someone who's not an economist would have said, look at this stupid behavior of people. They pay tremendously high interest rates. They go to Las Vegas and they pay to reduce risk when they get their car insurance at the counter in Las Vegas airport. Then they drive to a casino and pay to lose money. 
like and on and on and on. So, you know, we identify in the first ordinaries column, like what are the big picture behaviors that look like they're bad? People die a lot from drug addiction, number one. Number two, people have lifestyle choices that lead to early death, including me, right? So we don't work out as much as we should and we have the wrong diets. We're not very good at savings. So you would think, oh my gosh, Richard Thaler is going to write about the anomalies of economic behavior. He's going to write about drug addiction, obesity, suicide, lifestyle choices. And the answer is he writes about some irrelevant inconsistency. And the answer is that he was very smart. He got his Nobel Prize by criticizing economics from within the field. And within the field, that's all you can do is argue about the inconsistencies. You can't argue about the big picture issues because those are actually consistent with maximizing invisible and unmeasurable utility. Right. And so your approach is to import insights from from biology to try to understand you know, what humans are actually doing. I used to go to animal behavior society conferences many years ago. And every time I went, I never met a single animal behaviorist who said, you know, my animal is stupid. You know, if they're studying primates, they don't say the primates are stupid. And when they're studying slime molds, they don't say slime molds are stupid. But we as, you know, behavioral economists are always saying that that humans are are, are stupid. So what's different about the kind of biology approach? And why is it that it, it doesn't really make sense to say that people are stupid? Right. I mean, first of all, the idea that people are stupid is just crazy, right? So if you measure biomass on the planet, humans are by far the most successful multicellular organisms. Okay, The only competitors to us, the only things that even register at all are things that we eat. So cows and sheep. So we dominate the planet, right? So much so that we're destroying the planet. So we've been super successful biologically, amazingly successful, right? And then technologically, again, everybody has their own story. To me, it's just incredible that we dug up a bunch of materials from the earth and can fly to the moon. I mean, the idea that we're stupid is just crazy. We developed a COVID vaccine in a few months, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So humans are super, super, super smart. And any idea that they're stupid is in itself crazy. So the difference between people who study animals and people who study people is the animal people have a better framework, and that framework is grounded in natural selection. So natural selection is a potent creator of maximizing behavior. Animals are super smart. They're super sophisticated. But that maximization is reified, it's built into the physiology of the animal by specific structures inside their brains and inside their bodies. And when you take those highly tuned structures and put them in a novel environment, they don't produce the outcome that they produced in a different environment. You know, my favorite example of this is really funny. I I don't know if you could show an image or put it up there, but there is a toilet, and I'm pretty sure it's in Germany, and the toilet's in a public square. And it is a toilet where all of the sides are one-way mirrors. So when you're outside the toilet... I have the, I use that image in my lecture, one of my lectures. Do you? That's so awesome. And you got it separately from me or you got it from me? No, I, I actually, I use it in, actually in a data science class <laughs> to talk about, you know, why you want to capture as much data as possible and prevent others from seeing your data. Oh, that's so funny. Wow. Right. So for me, I like it as a, so just to be clear, biology has a framework of causality, which involves four different types of causality. And the one that economists think about ultimate causation is what's the best thing you should do. And then the one we're talking about right now is the proximate cause. What's the mechanistic explanation? And so what's funny about these toilets is, and I haven't been in one, but I've been in an airplane where there's a big window in the toilet. And the issue is that So when you're inside the toilet, the German toilet, you can see out. You can see thousands of people in the square around you. But when you're outside the toilet, you can't see in at all. It's completely opaque to you. 
And you, of course, before you went in the toilet, can see that it's completely opaque. So you know with part of your brain that you're completely private, but other parts of your brain are screaming at you like, this is not a behavior that we traditionally do in public. And so it's funny, right? And that's just a fun example of mechanism versus outcome. And the answer, of course, is in the ancestral environment, the environment in which your brain evolved, there's no such thing as a one-way mirror. And in fact, I can't think of any setting where you would be able to see someone and not be seen. You could hide in some bushes and look out through there, but still for you to see the other person's eyes, their eyes have to be able to see you. So we're evolved to have mechanisms for evaluating our level of privacy, and we change our behavior based on those mechanisms, not based on the actual level of privacy. Let me continue on that. It's funny. They did a study on bike thievery. So I did some early papers on this saying that you could manipulate people's behavior and you can make them act nicer when you fooled them into thinking that they were in public. And fooling is not like lying to them or deceiving. It's literally putting eye spots or eye images or manipulating their systems. A university... In Philadelphia, we would put fake cameras at the intersections because they couldn't afford to have real cameras. Yeah. So the fake cameras, though, will interact not with your um, subconscious eye detection machinery. They'll interact with your cognitive function, right? So here was an interesting study in a university in England. They wanted to reduce bike theft. So they found the 47 places where people park bikes on the campus, and they randomly selected half of them to have eye, eye spots, pictures on the wall, literally a picture with eyes on the wall. All 47 of them, every one of them, I don't know if it was 47, but all of them were already being filmed. They all had cameras. Okay, so every single bike theft was being recorded by the police on their cameras. But in half of the spots, they had eyes in the environment. And what they found was that people preferentially stole bikes from the bike racks that didn't have eyes in the environment. And people have done this in lots of places. You'll see eyes lots of places around. But it's interesting because neither neoclassical nor behavioral economists would predict that, right? So that's the whole point of doing an experiment that's motivated by biology. So you want to make a prediction that's completely different from anything from either of the other two, right? So in the neoclassical view, if you know you're in public and the payoffs to public behavior are different, then you might act differently in public. But if you actually know you're in private, you will act the same way as you would if you were completely in private, regardless where there's eye spots. And then the behavioral explanation for these sorts of behaviors are something to do with human niceness. So if the reason that you're doing something is out of human niceness or lack of niceness, you're not going to be altered by the presence or absence of a picture of someone's eyes in your environment. So they don't make any sense at all from either the neoclassical or the behavioral view, but they make a lot of sense from the biological view. Well, I think it's not just economics, but psychology and medicine even, where there's this kind of focus on proximate causes without a lot of deep thinking about kind of final causes. I mean, if you go to organizational behavior talks, even if you go to, you know, uh, medical research talks, it's about, well, they'll construct a, a theory and maybe call it like the, you know, fairness theory or something like that, which is not really a theory. It's sort of a, just a redescription of, of what they're observing. Or in medicine, there'll be an emphasis on, you know, the operation of a particular hormone, but there really isn't a whole lot of thought about, you know, why you might have this particular mechanism at work. What's the resistance to that? Why is there a resistance to that? I don't know the specifics enough to know about the motivations, but the complete explanation has to involve all of the different levels of causation. So proximate, ultimate, ontogeny, and phylogeny. And so, as you said, there's no journal of behavioral animal behavior, right? There were, or where the anomalies of behavior. When you see a behavior that doesn't maximize in a non-human animal, biologists are trained to think about what's the what are the other three causes that could lead to um, a lack of optimization. 
So economists are probably pretty good at doing the maximization problems and the people you're talking about who don't do better on the mechanism, but the more complete version is to do both. And let me tell you another story. So Margot Wilson was a great biologist, editor of um, a great journal and author of a, a fantastic book that we used for your sex evolution behavior. I was talking to her and I realized that a lot of people have this Darwinian moment where they see behavior through the lens of natural selection and biology. And when that happens, it's kind of a conversion, which is, oh, now I understand the world. And so she told me about her conversions. And she said, I was an ornithologist. I studied birds. And I had the list of thousands of behaviors in my head of bird behavior. And then once I figured out that those were all driven by natural selection, I didn't have to memorize the list. It all made sense. And then if there is some behavior that doesn't make sense, then I can categorize that and try to figure out why it doesn't make sense. But I keep that its own list. And it just, she said, it just made her life so much easier and it made it so much better to have a theory as opposed to a collection of facts. Well, I mean, there's, there's this incredible convergence between the methodologies of biologists and the methodologies of methodologies of economists. I mean, you know, both are essentially just articulating constrained optimization problems. I mean, I taught biology once and it was actually pretty easy to do. I just took all the economics models and crossed out some of the terms and replaced new terms. And economists like Milton Friedman, you know, have been using kind of evolution, at least analogously, when they describe behavior of, of humans as if they're optimizing in some way. So do you think that there's you know more similarities than than people realize? Will it be relatively easy for economists to adopt the approach that you've been advocating, kind of the, the, this mismatch approach, is it really a fundamental transformation of their their model or is it just simply a you know adaptation of the model and replacement of certain elements of the model? I think the answer is that it's going to be hard for existing economists, not intellectually, but because of human capital reasons. Let me tell you a story. So in some species of monkeys, there's a strict hierarchy and the high ranking individuals can do whatever they want to the lower ranking individuals, except when it comes to finding food. If you find a pile of food and you don't give out a call that I found the food, they beat the heck out of you no matter what your rank is. Okay. So what do monkeys of those species do when they find food? Well, they look around to see if they're in public or private or not. If they're in private, they gobble it down. And if they're discovered, they get abused. And abused isn't just like getting yelled at. It's like literally you could die from it. So it's a decision that has to be made, and it's made by assessing the level of privacy. So if you fool those monkeys by putting the food out there where there are eyes in the environment, then they give the food call even when they wouldn't otherwise. So they're fooled. And again, their brains believe that they're in public. So now going back to your question, can we write a maximization model? We can. So we can maximize food intake subject to punishment, and the punishment is a function of whether you're in private or public or not. But what's challenging for economics is that humans live in a very strange world. And that world is so different from the world that we evolved in that most of our behavior looks silly. So when you do maximization models, they don't predict human behavior very well at all, because what are we maximizing? No one knows, right? And I would tell you, I mean, the most obvious example of this is for most rich industrialized humans, we have too much food, not too little. And that is exactly not true for almost all animals in the world, both human and non-human. And so when you go someplace where people don't have too much food, they don't even understand the problem of too much food. I lived in Western Uganda one summer, and I tried to explain to the cook, Mary, 
that some people will become bulimic by vomiting up the food. And she's like, oh, what's wrong with the food? Is it poison? I'm like, no, they just have too much food. And she's like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand what you're saying. Are you making fun of us because we're poor? And so in order to understand maximization, you have to understand mechanism and mismatch. Okay. So it is true that if you studied humans pre-agriculture and you started the way you study non-human animals, you would predict they maximize inclusive fitness. Okay. So what do people do? They try to survive, eat, survive, and reproduce. And pre-agriculture, I think you would have a pretty good view of humans. Just as any other animal, it's not that simple, but you would start with that. When you study humans in industrialized conditions, that doesn't make any sense, right? <laughs> the richer we get, the fewer kids we have. The more food we have, the fewer kids we have. It doesn't make any sense, right? So you have to understand the biologic mechanism. And you know, in economics, we promote people based on their ability to do stupid math. And uh, the stupid math doesn't help you understand the realities of the world. And I'll tell you two stories on that. My great advisor, Richard Caves, was an you know, amazing human being to me. In one of my papers, I talked about brood parasites. That's where birds of another species lay egg in a host species. He didn't know what a cuckoo was, you know, a C-U-C-K-O-O. He had spent his whole life doing economics. And he was a super smart, nice guy, but he had studied no biology. And then, should I be naming names here? Maybe I should. Jerry Green, he was the provost at Harvard, and he wrote Green, Winston, Mascalella, co-wrote it. And he came to a seminar. He's always very nice to me. And he said, Terry, let's just say that we take everything that you said. We were forged in a cauldron before agriculture, and you know our behaviors made sense in that environment, and those mechanisms taken to new environments don't make sense. Even if that were all true, how would we know what that environment looked like? And I said, you would go to the other parts of the university. <laughs> like group size is super important to the outcome of games, right? Well, we know what human group size was pre-agriculture, okay? It's not a mystery. There are people called anthropologists. They know the answer. So economics has been so isolated from the natural sciences that the people who practice it are unaware. You know, you have to retrain them. And it's hard because we are literally the dumber your mathematical model is in economics, the more likely you are to get tenure, right? Well, one of the ways in which you describe this book here at Mean Genes is you say that it's kind of the first, you know, biological self-help book, I think is how you describe it. Or and you know, the other yeah. book also is is a self-help book. And economists pride themselves on being primarily positive, you know, primarily descriptive, but there's always been a normative piece to economics, right? And the more economics you learn, the the better you might be able to perform in, in a very narrow set of tasks, right? So if you are trading securities, for instance, maybe, maybe in a highly liquid you know, market, you might outperform people who are not familiar with the economics models. I mean, in a business school, basic economics can allow a entry-level manager to just add a tremendous uh, amount of value. So there's always been this kind of normative piece to economics, but you're saying that understanding biology will actually help you to make better decisions across all aspects of your life, including even financial investments. Let's talk about non-finance first. So the idea is you have to understand the environment in which the mechanism involved, and then you have to think about how it's going to uh, operate in a novel environment. And to do one such study carefully, you need years of study. So I spent you know, a long time working on testosterone. And I won't talk about that right now unless you want me to, but it's hard. This yeah. relates to the other point, which is instead of doing an extra little twist on your math model, 
you have to go be the dumb person in the room. I went to the Harvard Anthropology Department and I ran the testosterone assays with my own hands. I co-authored a bunch of papers with people there and I learned a lot about testosterone so I could make predictions in an economic setting. So it's hard. But let me give you a, a more day-to-day -day example which people might resonate with. So humans are built to manage their reputation around other people. We evolved in a world where our behavior was never anonymous and it was almost always repeated. So you lived with the same people until you died, with the exception of one gender leaving at marriage or when groups fragment or not. So you can be darn sure that everyone knows your character and they know what you did when you confronted the elk or you confronted another person from another group. And so we're super sensitive to our reputation management. So Nelson Mandela, on the first day at Robben Island, he got off the boat and he was walking up the, the beach and the guards tried to make him run. And he said, I didn't know that I would be there for 27 years, but I knew that if I ran on the first day, I would run every day. So I took the beating. So there's a person who understands the importance of reputation management and was willing to take a severe cost up front to alter the consequences down the road. Now, conversely, when you live in a large city and you get in some sort of uh, road interaction with somebody else, your reputational management machinery fires up. Like this person's an asshole. I want to make an example. I'm going to win this battle with them. And I am a aging man with three kids. I do not want to die. And I don't give a shit if I get there 30 seconds or not. So when I get in those scenarios and people are mad at me, I disengage. I just slow down, let them go ahead. If they won't let me do that, I'll get off the freeway. I don't want to have any kind of road rage incident. I don't care at all. I'm not trying to be a big man on the road, but part of me does want to. I want to show them, you know? And so I have to intervene. And that's the point of Mean Genes, which is you understand that that is not a stupid part of your machinery. It is absolutely essential to success in the world. You have to manage your reputation. You have to be willing to fight for yourself, but not in stupid situations. On the road, it's a one-shot interaction. You'll never see that person again. So goodbye. Go ahead. Thank you. You won. Goodbye. I'll go home to my kids tonight. So, but isn't it enough just to convince someone that this is an imprudent thing? How does knowing what you're up against biologically make it easier for you or maybe you know, help you in your efforts to, to overcome them? Well, it's the same as the Margot Wilson. You don't have to have a, a list of facts you can understand. Oh, I see. Yeah, obviously you go through each one, right? I'm going to maintain my reputation. You know, certainly I'm going to eat as much food as I can because my ancestors were hungry a lot. So I'm not going to be naturally skinny. My ancestors didn't waste time exercising. I'm not going to be doing any exercise unless I'm smart about it. So it gives you the way to generate the reasons why your behavior isn't optimal. And then it allows you to try to interfere. It's not easy to do. Like becoming skinny is super hard, right? It's one of the dumbest things you could ever do as an ancestral human, right? You live in an environment without a fridge or a supermarket or anything. At any moment, you could go weeks without food. And so the best thing for you to do is store any excess on your body as extra calories. And so if you try to interfere with that in our modern lives, it's super hard to do. Uh, road rage, I'm very successful at. I don't get in road rage incidents. I do hate almost everyone who drives a BMW, but I don't get in fights with them. And I was actually gratified that they had a list of who are the worst drivers. It was a formal U.S. government survey, and it was the BMW, which is accords with my intuition so uh well, I, have, I have two bmws but i leave them in the garage you know <laughs> now you drive your six Prius, and a half days so a you're week <laughs> <laughs> well you know it goes one way not the other way right so um 
And I'm kidding, sort of. But you will tell, you can see in the rearview mirror the BMW approaching. So having a view of why you're getting outcomes that you don't want and the evolutionary cause for that, I find to be super helpful. It's actually a taste issue. People who like it, love it. And people who don't like it think it's crazy, right? They can go find their inspiration somewhere else. But for me, it's super easy. And it allows you to generate predictions even in areas where you don't have any experience. Like what would have been the behavior that would have been appropriate for an ancestral human? Well, you also mentioned that while the mismatch is leading to all sorts of problems, unlike other species that are encountering a similar mismatch, and mismatch is happening all around the world because we're changing the world so dramatically, unlike other species that have mismatch, humans have, have ways of dealing with them. You know, we've, we've evolved prefrontal cortex and other uh, tools that help us to deal with it in ways that plants can't deal with it, other animals can't deal with it. Talk a little bit about those those techniques. Yeah, you, you have to be crafty. The most recent article that we published in the Ordinary Series has a taxonomy of how you can get a better outcome. So and there are exactly four. You want outcome A, but you're going to get B. First is willpower. I'm just going to sit here and not eat the food. I'm going to work out every few minutes. I'm going to be nice to my neighbors. So that works. It's great. We have more ability to do it than other animals. Any problem that you still have in the world means you've already failed on willpower, right? <laughs> so... For some people in some areas, it's great. Solution number two is mass strapping. That's to destroy some outcome you don't like. And in Mean Genes, the story that people like the most is of my co-author, Jay Phelan, sitting at, at an airline with a brownie in front of him that he, he doesn't want to eat, or more precisely, his prefrontal cortex doesn't want him to eat. And he knows it's going to be sitting there for 30 minutes until the flight attendant comes by to pick up the tray, and he's going to give in. So what does he do? He covers the brownie in mayonnaise. So this is the Odyssean mass strapping idea of strapping yourself to the mass and destroying the outcome you don't want. Okay, so that's like Susie uh, Orman free, freezing her credit cards, you know, in the freezer. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. Then they don't work when you slide them. Is that the issue? Or no, that is you. You don't remember the credit card number. You put oh, the credit card in a glass of water. You put it in the oh, freezer. So you have to wait. You have to Until wait for it, it to thaw out before you can use it. Great. Now, of Excellent. course, you've got it automatically in your phone. So it's that that technique doesn't yes. work. Yeah. So mass strapping is number two. Number three is innovation. So in innovation, you create something else that's that you like, which is not bad for you. And again, we have a lot of examples of this. So if you think that roller coasters don't give you brain damage, then a roller coaster is an example of that. You might enjoy the thrill of going fast. And if you do that on a freeway, you might increase your chance of dying. But if you do it on a roller coaster, in principle, you can get all of the thrills with none of the death. And so that goes across all different areas. Innovation allows you to create something novel. I don't think that it's necessarily true, but people have certainly tried to make you know, fake sugars. I don't think they actually work very well, but the idea is you get the sweetness without the calories, but I think in that case, they don't work very well. And then option number four is to take an action which changes your preferences. So again, the most well-known version of this is to eat before you go to the supermarket. So when you go to the supermarket, if you're hungry, you might fill your cart with things that are not good for you. And if you eat beforehand and you're satiated, you might allow your prefrontal cortex to do more. And I did some research on that well. So if you're satiated when you make a lot of decisions, including financial decisions, you make better decisions. So that's the taxonomy. Number one, self-control issue is that you are going to take a behavior that your prefrontal cortex doesn't want you to take. So you're going to eat too much, be mean to people, get in arguments, be lazy, whatever. And how do you achieve your goal? Number one, willpower, just do the right thing. B, mass strapping, destroy the bad thing. C, create something new that feels good and isn't terrible for you. 
or D, take a preemptive step that changes your own preferences so that you're more likely to take like the good path rather than the bad path. And then each of those is specific to the type of problem that you're working on. And you have to think, well, how do I apply these three different generic strategies in each of the areas of my life where I'm trying to change my behavior? Self-deception is a good one, right? So I'll surround myself with with uh, graduate students so that I'll perceive myself to be wealthier than I, than I actually am. Right. So I see, you know, so I wonder, is that something different? So I see. So in your specific idea, you're saying, right. So you're putting yourself in a different environment. So I don't, I don't want to stretch the taxonomy too much, but it, you could view that either as, yeah, you can view it as some other combination of the other three, I think. So, but you can have your own taxonomy that has, you know, moving to a different environment that, that has a different set of options or changes the way you think about the options is sort of a combination of mass strapping and number four for us. But it doesn't matter. I'm not beholden to the, the, that complete, you know, that taxonomy. So last point, one of the things that, that I teach is I teach, of course, on behavioral finance. And, you know, you have a whole book on finance and, you know, how to navigate uh, financial markets. One of the things that we've been talking about in that class a lot this this semester has been you know the rise of apps like Robinhood and you know how they they're basically just tapping they're making it just easier and easier and easier for people to pursue their dopamine fix and this is of course in alignment with all sorts of other dopamine stimulating devices and and apps that that we're exposed to do you do you see that innovation that to sort of feed these these bad instincts is outpacing the innovation on the side of helping people to restrain their bad behavior? Is this an arms race, yeah. technological arms race? Who's yes. winning? Well, in general, entities will create products that you pay for, and they don't care whether it's good or bad for you. And I think overall, you know, since the invention of agriculture, we've moved to a world where instincts get us into trouble a lot. So. I think that pre-agricultural humans had a lot less self-control. So where self-control obviously had some value, we have the ability to do it, it's way more important now. My joke is, well, I have two different jokes. So I ask my students, if you're going to die in an hour, what would you do for the next hour? And I said, don't tell me, because there are always things that are inappropriate to say in public. And so the answer is that as long as you're willing to do something that isn't pleasurable for you every minute of your life, you'll end up with a good life. No one's going to be scrolling on their Facebook newsfeed, I imagine, for that last hour. Well, the f- one thing for sure they're not going to be doing is sitting in my class. So <laughs> achieving long-term goals requires constant deferral of gratification to a very strange extreme, right? So again, most animals in their natural setting, doing the behavior which causes the most dopamine at that moment is the right behavior to do to maximize inclusive fitness. And so what's strange for modern industrialized humans is doing that behavior which maximizes dopamine today is almost never the right thing to do. So we live in a world of constant battles of willpower. And again, I believe it's almost entirely caused by mismatch. So we, we fight these all the time. And uh, those who are more successful have better outcomes than, than those who are less successful. Terry, thanks so much for joining today. Mean Jeans, still out there, hopefully in print, right? Is it? You and Jay's book? There's a second edition of both those books that you showed. So things are there. Okay. And uh, also my website, terryburnham.com. You can contact me. All right, great. And you're continually posting new material and this ordinary series. Very interesting. Yes. Hopefully you'll continue with it. Thanks yeah, so much, Thanks Terry. so much, Greg. Nice to see you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.